end of the show, Shady Rays wanted to pass on a sweet, sweet deal to our listeners. For a limited time, use code TEAM, capital T-E-A-M, to receive 40% off when you order two or more pairs of sunglasses. Follow the link in our show notes or in our Instagram bio to order yours today. Shady Rays, live hard, we got you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. This guest's name has come up on so many episodes where we just finally had to get him on so we could either confirm or deny some of these great stories we're hearing about him. So he attended the University of Alberta for five years, where he's a two-time national champion. He was Youth Sports Player of the Year. He's the only setter to record 1,000-plus assists in a season. He still holds the Canada West record for total assists and assists per set. He's currently on our national team. And with his club team, he won the Belgian Cup this year, and he recently started Precision Volleyball Academy, which we can't wait to pick his brain about. So please welcome to the show, Brett Walsh. Brett, thanks for doing this. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. So, like I said, your name keeps coming up, and one thing that was mentioned was uh, Jared Mueller and a few other guys we've had on the show, like Ben Sachs and Jesse Elster. They just talked about this awesome community in Calgary and, and kind of learning about you before the show. It looks like your, your family was a big influence on just this second generation of volleyball, people growing up in the area. So what was your childhood like? Was volleyball the sport for you, or did you play anything else growing up? I was a volleyball guy from a, a, as, as young of an age as, as you kind of could be at the time in Calgary, I'd say, or Canada. I started playing volleyball a year before the technical U13 entrance age, so I was 11, uh, playing with guys a year older. But uh, up until that point, I had really you know, thought about volleyball as an option other than uh, playing around the house with my family and stuff. I was actually really big into golf. I was a big golf guy growing up. I played basketball, community basketball, you know, in junior high and whatnot, and, and youth soccer. And I, I tried out a whole bunch of stuff, uh, which I'm thankful for, and I think was was very good for me. But I'd say my other main sport as a as a young kid, other than other than volleyball, was definitely golf. And then once once I kind of dipped my toes into the volleyball world, I just absolutely fell in love with it, and uh, that kind of filled my my uh, my passion as far as what I figured I would be doing from, from there on in. And were you ever aware of what your parents had accomplished, right? Was, with both your parents being varsity athletes, and I believe your dad's an Olympian, right? Were you ever aware of like how daunting of a, of a goal that was for them, or was it just kind of cool to have a, a family who knew everything about volleyball? Well, one small correction, my dad didn't actually end up going to the Olympics, uh, but he did play overseas, and he played national team for quite oh, a long shoot. time. Sorry about that. He had a great career. No, no worries. Um, no, it was. I, I don't really remember ever feeling any sort of pressure associated with that. I just remember thinking it was just so awesome that both my parents liked to play volleyball and would play with me whenever I asked. <laughs> and that was kind of all it really came down to for me. I, I, as I've gotten older, I've learned more and more about both of their volleyball careers and lives and stuff and, and gained a greater appreciation for what they both were able to accomplish. Um, as it, as I kind of experienced some similar things myself, and and so that was pretty cool. Um, getting to relate to my parents, I guess, also on that level of having sh- shared a lot of similar experiences. But in terms of of it being daunting or, or feeling pressure, I don't remember that ever being an issue. And I think that's also a, a big part of my parents doing a really good job of um, not making it about them at all, and just letting me kind of navigate my own situation, and, and of course helping me through it and giving me lots of opportunities to play but um they were they were fantastic about letting it be my own journey rather than about them 
Nice, nice. And do you remember how old you were when you started having post-secondary uh, goals? Because one one great story that Jaron shared with us is they didn't really have a second setter his year, so they kind of rotated who was going to be either at practice or who was going to come to tournaments. And he mentioned you got in and a college scout identified you and asked what your plans were next year. And the, and the head coach of the club just kind of laughed and said, well, I think he's going to finish junior high, but maybe in a couple of years you can look up what he's doing. So when did you start to realize that you had the skill to play at the next level? <laughs> that is a hilarious story. Yeah, well, I mean, that was such a cool opportunity for me as a, as a really young little kid in the club to get up and, and play with the older guys, especially Jaron. I looked up to Jaron so much and, and still do and learned so much from him along the way. And for me, he was he was a bit of an idol. And so get to, to get to go play with Jaron and learn from him and be with the older guys was, was so much fun. And then after that tournament, I guess I must have played a good game or something. And one of the college coaches came by and, and inquired to our coach about, you know what, what if I had signed anywhere yet and yeah like you say I think I think both the coaches Andy Hayer and Phil Brown at that time were pretty witty guys so I think they, they jumped on that one pretty quick but um, I I don't really remember a time where I where I didn't want to go play in university and I think that's just a function of me knowing that that was a, an option um, and growing up in a household of parents that that did that so I, I just kind of intrinsically knew that, that that was a path that you could go with volleyball and you know like any kid that idolizes their parents they kind of just want to follow in their footsteps and uh, that's what I wanted to do and I knew that they both had, had done that so um, as far as I can remember I, I, I think I imagined myself going to play somewhere in university and that was just a such a dream and goal of mine that um, that I don't remember one specific time of of saying, okay, this is what I want to do. It was just I played and then loved playing and, and kept working at it and, and whatnot. But always, I guess, I imagined myself there wherever wherever that might have been. Nice. And what do you remember about that year? Because I think a lot of people would be intimidated or they get the phone call and think, well, I got my own commitments with my own club team. I don't really want to add extra practice. And, you know, these guys are older than me. They're better than me. Like, were you excited or was there ever a moment where you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know if this is going to be the right thing for me to do? Well, I was nervous for sure. No, no question. As you know, as being the young guy and going play with the older guys that are so much bigger and stronger and better. Um, but for me, as soon as I got that opportunity and they asked if I would be interested in doing that, it was like an absolute no-brainer because basically all I wanted to do at that point was just play as much volleyball as possible. And if I could have been in the gym twelve hours a day, I would have. And so it was just another opportunity to play more volleyball that I couldn't pass up. And so that was a no-brainer. For sure there were there were nerves, but the guys were extremely welcoming to me and made me feel um, like a part of the team, which was which was really cool too. And I got to learn so much about leadership from those guys. And, and basically, I, was, I think I was 15 and they were, I was 14 or 15 and they were 17, 18. And there's a pretty big difference in maturity there. So I got the opportunity to learn a lot about leadership and, and teamwork and, and stuff from, from guys on that team that I carried with me. So. I think I was just so thrilled to get the chance to play volleyball at a level I hadn't played before that I was more excited than anything, but there were nerves for sure. So when it finally came time for you to start uh, looking at different schools, was U of A always like a standout in your mind, or did you consider or visit other other universities or colleges? Like, were you ever interested in leaving Can West, or you wanted to stay close to home? Like, what were all the, the little things that you considered when you were going to choose where you're going to play your post-secondary? I definitely... Well, well, my dad and Terry, uh, Terry Danilak, had played together on the national team, and and where I had grown up, you know, 
knowing Terry from basically when I was a baby. And so for me, Terry was just kind of, for a long time, just my dad's friend that I knew and was, was a part of our life. And then when it came time to start thinking about universities, it was like I, I kind of had that relationship built with Terry already a little bit, which was which was useful. But for sure, I was I was strongly considering a lot of different places. There were a few schools down down south that I was thinking about. I was talking to a few NCAA schools. I had a, a really good relationship and, and have a really good relationship with Ben Josephson that I, I went on a recruiting trip out there to, to Trinity um, in my grade 11 year. That was just awesome. And I just had the best time and made a really made my choice extremely difficult um, when it came down to it, for sure. A ton of respect for, for Ben and the Trinity program out there. So it was hard to hard to make a decision. Um, but I, I thought that just the way the, the distance of Edmonton to, to home in Calgary was really attractive to me, that it was away from home, but it was still pretty close. Cause I am quite close with my family, and I, I wanted to be able to see them often. And, and so that kind of checked that box pretty well and obviously the U of A program is so historically successful and I knew Terry well and knew that he was a great coach and, and a lot of my kind of comrades in club volleyball and provincial team and stuff had been going there to U of A so just the pieces kind of fell in an, in an order that I saw myself fitting into well um, when it came to U of A and, and I decided to to go with U of A, but it was not an easy decision. And, um, there were a lot of a lot of factors to consider, for sure. And when you arrived with the squad, do you remember kind of your first impressions? Like, did you have expectations to really contribute as a first year? Did you just want to get your, your feet on the ground and really see what U Sports was all about? Like, how did you feel those first few practices when you were with the team? I remember feeling challenged, I would, I would say is a good word, because it was going from basically club club and provincial team is what the level that I played to at that point, which is great, but it was it's a whole other step up. And my first year there were guys like Tristan Aubrey and Eric Batson and, and Mitch Irvin on the team that were fifth year guys that are five years older than me and just are like beasts, you know, and I'm just this kind of skinny little eighteen year old kid coming up and, and I, I was I was confident in my abilities and, and whatnot and I felt that I would be able to get up to speed with those guys with, with, with time of training with them and thought and hope that I could contribute. But I do remember just feeling like, Oh, Holy crap. This is something I've never seen before. Like one of the first practices I remember, I had always fancied myself to be like a pretty good passer, even though I was a setter. <laughs> and then I, I remember stepping in on one like serve receive drill in the first week and Mitch Irvin was serving lefty bombs like harder than anything I'd ever seen before and he served a few at me and just like I couldn't even see the ball it was just gone before I could even react and I think I don't think I stepped in past another ball for a long time at, at the U of A after <laughs> that and that was like even though it wasn't relevant, relevant to my position it was kind of like a game I think it helped me gain like a greater respect for like how difficult it is to pass a ball at that level or how difficult it is to be a hitter at that level and probably did a lot of good in a lot of ways but that was definitely like a, a holy crap moment like these guys are beasts and I've got some work to do for sure yeah you mentioned like Eric Matson and some other vets around the team how did you find like your spot within the team because there's from a distance I, I would say that there's some pretty strong personalities and pretty elite players right like your era of like John Gorenson Riley Barnes uh 
I think McMullen entered when you were there. Were practices pretty intense when you got there? Like, was it not only challenging to, to improve to the level? Because like you said, going from club to university is a jump. But like some of those practices had to be almost arguably better than some league matches, right? So how was the vibe in practice with you being, you know, in a pretty important role in that setting position? Yeah, that was and that was a big reason why I chose to go to U of A as well. It was because I knew that the, the quality of the team top to bottom was so high and the practices would be so competitive, um, particularly because, like, Jared, who you talked to before, was there, um, and he was one of the best setters in the country, hands down. And I was, you know, I was prepared to battle it out with him, but I was also prepared to kind of spend a year or two totally just grinding down practice, learning and improving my own game. That's something we can talk about later, but yeah, the practices were just fantastic, like just so competitive. And the guys created such a such a competitive but healthy competitive culture that over their time there that I just kind of got to step right into and be a part of, which was pretty cool. But yeah, some of our scrimmages or wash games or whatever were just like extremely high level, both sides going at it. And, and we had a, such a deep team that there, there wasn't one side usually that was just dominating and that that's what made it so so great day to day you just you knew you had to come to the gym and be your best if you wanted to have a successful practice and if you wanted to you know keep your keep your spot whatever that might be it was it was it was like that on a daily basis it was like you better bring it today or else someone else is going to and uh you're gonna get your friggin' butt kicked pretty quick so um it was a pretty cool environment to be a part of Nice. Yeah. And, and I'm going to bring up Jaron a few times this episode, I'm sure. And I recommend anyone to go back and listen to that. But he did mention uh, he, he dealt with a, a tough injury and actually had to, you know, give the spot to you by, by way of an injury. And he mentioned you guys had such a good relationship that he felt like he could, you know, maybe maybe not coach you up in a sense, but be a good peer to you, kind of ask questions, really kind of lead you through some situations. So for you, what was that situation like with a vet who you were aware of because you were around in the club area, but for somebody who was injured and you, I don't know, for lack of a better term, took their spot, for him to offer help and not just get like the, what was me, pouty face, what was that experience like for you being, you know, pushed into that starting role, but know that you had the support of the guy behind you? Oh, it was amazing. It was, uh, I already respected Jaron as much as, as I could anybody and, and we already had a great relationship and he had been such a great mentor for me for the few previous years leading up to me being at U of A. Like, I, like we had talked about before through club volleyball, we played the same club and I got the chance to play with him a little bit. Um, but he was always there just as, as a friend and a guide and a mentor. And then, so I was really thrilled to be on the same team as him and, and getting to play alongside. And then really, unfortunately, in preseason in my first year at Laval, he went down with a really bad ankle injury in a preseason game and then I was kind of you know the other guy and thrust into that starting position and uh and that was really tough for him from an injury standpoint because it was a serious injury it took him a while to get back from it so he's dealing with that plus you know he's kind of i think he was poised to have a really awesome year personally and, and our team was in an amazing position to have a huge year and, and he was going to be a crucial part of that and uh so I think that was extremely difficult for him, but he never wavered in his positivity and his leadership and uh, throughout that whole period. And he totally did, like, coach me, whether or not he knew he was even doing it because he's just a really, really good guy. But I learned so much from him, and he was he was so far ahead of me from, from a tactical, technical, and experiential standpoint at that point. I just had so much to learn from him, and thankfully, he was willing to, to share his knowledge and expertise and experience with me such a helpful, positive way, and he was just extremely committed to uh, 
into helping the team first. And I thought that was just, just so cool and something I took a lot out of. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. It was, it's great to hear both your sides of this. So can you give us just a couple examples of what that what that really looked like in practice? Like, was it just little things about like, oh, make sure you're doing this footwork or did you look off the middle or did you see the spread option? Like, how, how technical, tactical is he getting with you in, in these situations where, like I said, like you took his spot technically, for lack of a better term. I think he even mentioned that there, there was a Canada West playoff match where you guys lost the first match and you got the nod in the second one. So, I mean, you, you were still battling it out as the season goes on, but it's it sounds like he never gave up on that relationship you guys had built. Well, that's exactly right. And, and when Jared came back from his injury, which he worked really hard to come back from, and then we were, you know, battling out for a spot. We had had success in the first half, and then basically he came back in Christmas. Um, and I think we kind of played half time each on our trip to California. And then after that, he had uh, taken the spot back and ended up playing most of the second half. And I would come in when needed. And, and then, yeah, like you say at the end there, right, kind of down to the last couple of weeks of the season, we lost a tough match in our Canada West semifinal against Brandon, and the next match was, was do or die, we don't go to nationals, and Terry decided to give me the, the start. Um, so that was, I think, uh, would have been extremely difficult for, for Jaron, but even through that, he was just extremely, had put his poker face on and supported me and supported the team, and thankfully we ended up successful in got to go to nationals. Um, but like you say, he, you know, he could have handled that in a very different way than he did. And, and how he handled that, I just have the utmost respect for him. But from a, from a day-to-day practice standpoint, I mean, when we would do specific technical setting work, um, he would offer help with, you know, hand position or footwork stuff or what he likes to um, think about when he's, when he's setting or what he likes to look for on the other side and all those things, those little things. But um, most of that kind of tactical, tactical, technical analysis stuff was, was done off the court. And, and he was really good about watching video with me and uh, taking the time to explain things that, that he's learned over time. But I think for me, the, the biggest thing on a, on a practice standpoint that I learned from Jaron was just his competitive drive and, and how he showed up to compete every day. And I mean, don't like when we're competing against each other six on six, it was tense. And, and we, we knew that there was a spot on the line and, and we were working for that individually, but we also knew that that would make the, the team better. And it was extremely competitive a lot of the time. And, and I think that's what I took the most from Jaron. It was just, just his competitive nature his willingness to, to fight uh, every day. So that's that's where he showed it by example. And then there were little things off the court and, and in technical training and stuff that he shared with me about setting that were that were awesome too. But just that his competitiveness, I think, was something that I that I needed to learn, and and, and he helped me uh, kind of foster that. And what do you remember about your your first year at Nationals there? So to give a quick shout out to the crowd at Laval, I mean this as a compliment, not as a knock, that if that tournament's not at Laval, I don't think they win. I think the crowd was that big of an influence on the opponent and just how loud and crazy it got in there. So what was it like playing in that environment? Yeah, that was crazy. That was my first kind of real exposure to like a really big, loud crowd by far. Like, I mean, it was in the Laval Pavilion there and, I don't know how many people it was, but it was the pit stands were absolutely packed, all red and making noise like crazy all game long. And uh, like you say, like just total credit to them for helping their team through, and their team did a good job. Their their style of game was just so chippy and, and energetic that it just fed right into the crowd, and they loved to play the crowd. And uh, and that was 
I think a huge part of their of their win that year, no question. They're obviously extremely talented team and had some really great players, but their their environment that that we played that tournament in was uh, was a big advantage to them. Nice. And just uh, doing some research before the show, it looks like while you're you're accomplishing this at U of A and you're contributing as a first year, you were also on that Canada Games team from Alberta that ended up winning in Sherbrooke, right? <laughs> and what was that experience like? Because you would have finished first year or was that before first year? I'm trying, just trying to figure out the exact timing of when you would have went to that event. Yeah, so that was the summer after my first year at university. Nice. So did the the technical, tactical stuff you had worked on at U of A, not only with your coaches, but with Jaron being a big influence, did that really apply at the provincial team level, or did you have to learn a brand new system to go to that competition? No, that, that applied for sure. Um, that was a big um, learning year for me, no question. And uh, I, uh, yeah, no, definitely. That, that competition was just fantastic and uh, learned a lot and got to play a lot and, and be a, a big contributing member of that team. And Again, that was what was interesting about that was that uh, it was again in Quebec that summer, and again we played Quebec in the final, and it was an extremely loud, pretty hostile environment. A little bit smaller scale than Nationals was in terms of how many people were there, but it was pretty cozy in the, in the Sherbrooke gym there, and it felt like a really similar environment. And in Laval, I had uh, lost my head a little bit in that game for sure when things started to slide and not go our way, which was a sign of you know my, my youth and my inexperience. And, and then to get that next opportunity to have a tough, important match in, a, in almost the same environment shortly after and then kind of grind it out and stay strong and end up winning that game was, was, was a cool moment for me because it was like a pretty um, tangible like learning experience between then and then the, to get that next chance to play in the same environment and be successful in it was was pretty gratifying. Uh, but that that tournament was amazing, and, and our team was just so much fun. That was one of the one of my favorite summers um, that I've had with that group. We were all extremely close and did a, a whole bunch of fun stuff together that summer, and uh, obviously capped it off winning that tournament, which which made everything extra special. But uh, that was a, a special summer for me. Yeah, do you mind sharing any examples of, of what you learned that time? Either, like, are you somebody who likes to ignore the crowd? Do you like to acknowledge them? Like, how do you kind of deal with distractions when you're playing at such a high level? What was something you learned pretty early in your career that was valuable for you? For, for me, I've never been a guy that's really been a huge, like, involve the crowd kind of guy. There's Sometimes when you're playing at home and the crowd's on your side, it's, it can be a, a good, like, tactic to to fire up the crowd at the right moment. But I, I, I've always found that in hostile environments, I think the less you can kind of aggravate the crowd, the better. Um, don't give them any extra reason to, to cheer louder or cheer against you. Um, unless you're that type of guy that just feeds off that and you know that's going to help your team, then go for it. But what I learned, I think, was was through that experience, especially in Laval, with, like the crowd really, I allowed the crowd to take me out of, like my my area of focus where it needed to be and and uh and that was you know a big part of why my my play suffered and uh so i think from that i learned and many other experiences playing in loud hostile environments was that the more i can just put my total energy towards my team the better off i'm going to feel and and i think the more connected we'll be as a group so I, i i've always tried to focus my energy and intensity and stuff on on my teammates and, and firing each other up and, and keeping keeping each other focused and just kind of 
trying to create a small little bubble on the court of, uh, of who's out there and, and just that helps to kind of block out the distractions that can take you out of the game. So, yeah, I guess my answer would be I personally try to channel all of my energy and intensity towards my own my own teammates out there. And that helps me just maintain my focus on what I need to do rather than allowing distractions in. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that one. So one thing that, that stood out just when your name came up pretty early here, just in the Ontario community, was uh, junior national team tryouts. And our hometown boy, Andrew Coker, he ended up not making the team. And when we heard that, we're like, oh, well, I guess, you know, Brett Walsh probably beat him out and maybe some other guy. But when we found out that both of you didn't make the team, we were actually pretty shocked. So with that being on, on your journey, what stood out in that? What kind of feedback did you get? Like, did you feel you were ready or did they give you some feedback that made you, you know, obviously be a successful national team player now? But at that time, what was like the messaging you received when you found out you didn't make the squad? Yeah, that was that was a difficult experience for sure. I was I felt like I was, you know, right in there and, and had a good shot to make the team, which I, which I did, but uh, didn't end up being selected. So that hurt a lot. And, and uh and it was, you know, at the time there were there were guys better than me, and that was just the reality of it. Even though I didn't maybe necessarily want to believe that, like any athlete that is competitive. Um, but uh, one of the things that they, the feedback that I received, and, and they're really good about giving each guy feedback and explaining what they, their rationale behind their decision. So that's always been a, a cool thing that volleyball Canada does. But I was told that I needed to take more risk as a setter. And uh, that uh, was interesting to me, but it, and it took me some time to kind of understand what that meant. Um, and there were other things. There were lots of physical things. I was still young and developing, and needed to get stronger and work work out more and speed up my feet and, and all those things that that were shared with me too. That were that were really great uh, pieces of feedback. But yeah, so I, it was shared with me that I needed to learn to take more risk as a setter. And, and that's, uh, like I said, took me some time to, to understand, but uh, was a really great piece of feedback for me that I could kind of gradually learn and, and implement into my, into my game. And so I think overall that experience of getting cut that year was uh, a, lot, a lot of good things came out of it, I'll say. Was that also freeing at the same time with somebody with your pedigree? Like you've been playing volleyball your whole life. It sounds like you understand the game at a tactical level where now you got the green light to be creative and really do what you want. Because I remember the year you played uh, Garrett May's Western team, you bump set a C ball running into like out the sideline in five. And we just laughed on the live stream. We're just thinking like, you're the only guy in the country who would have made that set, right? So you're just so creative when you were in rhythm and just really rolling with those U of A teams you're on. Was that feedback? I know it was, like you said, harsh to take at the time, but when you got to practice and started working with Terry and Brock again, was it just kind of freeing to be able to just freestyle and do what you did? Yeah. And I, and if you ask Brock or, or Terry, probably more Brock because we worked pretty closely together after that point. He probably <laughs> he would probably tell you it was too much, and he had to rein me in, which was <laughs> and we and we uh, he always talked about as kind of an eighty twenty rule with me, and where eighty percent of my game approximately on any given day should be pretty you know tactical and under control and very very uh, thoughtful about what I'm doing and, and purposeful, and then that twenty percent can be that creativity like you mentioned and, and trying stuff and just you know just kind of seeing what happens in a moment and uh, that was always kind of more my my 
my I had more of a proclivity towards that side of the setting to just kind of feel and uh, react in a moment uh, rather than a very disciplined, planned out game plan. Um, and that's something Brock helps me a lot kind of rein in without losing that kind of inherent side of, of me, which was a huge help for me. But for sure, I, yeah, I would agree with you, Josh, actually, that it was freeing in a way to to know that the, the area of my game that they wanted to see me improve was was kind of in my control and allowed me to to experiment and try things and that that if I worked and trusted that process that eventually it would uh, I would find a you know my identity as a setter and and then we're getting to go back and, and talk to Brock about that and then implement a plan and, and kind of work through um, those things with him was a valuable resource for me. Yeah, without getting you into too much trouble with uh, Coach Brock Davidock, I was hoping you could share some secrets from practice. Like, friend of the show, Chris Tao, mentioned he was blown away one day, just walking through the door, and the setters were doing individual before practice, and all of a sudden, Brock's yelling, hey, Brett, what color is Chris's shirt? And based on the color he was wearing, you had to make a certain set uh, selection. So obviously, you guys are working on vision, awareness all around the gym, but obviously, you can't be working on that vision stuff if you don't have proper footwork and hand positioning stuff, right? So... How much did uh, Brock just really enjoy the, these tough tactical drills where, like I said, you're doing eye work, you're doing footwork, you're doing all this crazy stuff. It just seems like before a normal practice, right? Yeah, for sure. That was, uh, that was interesting. And, and that was kind of a, uh, something that grew over time as we kind of learned about how we wanted to uh, approach like the, the looking and the vision stuff and setting that, that Brock went through a methodical kind of approach to. But started off as a lot of just very traditional like looking through the net just to pick up where a guy is and then setting and then if a guy you know having a, a, a middle over there to take a step right or left and you set the opposite way or, or it started we started doing things like where Brock would be on the other side of the net and the ball would be coming in and he'd hold up fingers and if it was odd you would set behind if it was an even number you'd set in front and then we started doing two hands and then adding those together and then if it was odd set front and even set behind so we got pretty creative with it which was which was really fun and then like like Tao was talking about we'd be just doing like a a classic serve and pass drill going both ways and and the pass would be coming up and then Brock would be catching out out forward too and uh, say someone's like article of clothing so he'd say Tao's shirt and then I'd have to look and find first of all where Tao was it could have been anywhere, passenger rotating, could be serving, could be passing, and then and then see what color shirt is and then what color shirt was meant where I had to set. Like we had basically yellow, black, and gray practice shirts typically and we kind of decided that yellow would be power or position four and black would be position two, um, that sort of thing. It could have been shirt, shorts knee pads, shoes, whatever it was. So that was cool because it was fun and, and creative and lighthearted, but we were also accomplishing a lot, I think, because train just just the actual skill of looking, taking your eyes off the ball, being able to do that, first of all. And then in taking information and making a decision based on that information is what kind of the actual use of, of looking at the other side is. So that was Brock's really creative and fun way of, of training them. 
And what would you say the early things uh, you would look for? Because I'm sure some of our younger listeners or coaches are just ears are perking up right now. Like we can see setters looking through the net, but I'm wondering what you grasp. And I mean, we've had Derek up on the show and he's talking about like the middle's ready stance and if their heels are on the ground, where their hands are starting. Like I'm sure as you get comfortable with the look, you're just gathering more and more information. But where did this start from you? And then again, where did it end for you now as a national team setter? What are some little body language cues you're looking for? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, like you said, first and foremost, just to be able to actually take your eyes off the ball and, and then look back and set the ball requires good footwork and, and good, you know, preparation technique to set the ball. So that's the first and foremost thing. Before anybody starts worrying about any of the stuff, like the the technique side of setting has has to be pretty sound. That's not to say that that young kids should go and try and be creative with this stuff. I absolutely um, implore athletes to be creative and try and push the envelope with themselves but for sure for me the most important part about tutting is just the the technique behind it so that should be always first and foremost in athletes minds but it started for me i think looking for finding like talking about specific situations where a look would be useful um, with brock and then looking for those situations in a game so one for example would be running a 31 with your middle and then taking a look to see if the middle blocker follows your middle. And if he does and you can see it, then you set the right time. Or if he doesn't and he just stays in the middle and, and tries to read, then you set the 31. Or if you are running a 51 and you want to set the left side, taking a look before to see if the middle blocker is fronting the 51. Or if he's you know staying a little bit more central, there's a gap there. Or uh, another one we did was running a 51 and... and shoulder pipe combination, a pipe over the 51 hitter, and taking a look to see if the right side blocker was bunched in to help on the pipe or not. And then um, if, if he is, then, then releasing to the left side or setting the pipe um, if he's not. So that was kind of where it initiated pretty, pretty simply in just identifying specific situations where you're looking for one particular thing. And then you can start to kind of get creative with that and, and start running different plays around those parameters. So, but I think what Brock helped me understand was that rather than looking for everything at once, you should be looking for one specific thing and then making a decision based on that, which really helped to kind of simplify the concept and, and allow me to then build on that. But I'd say now for me, as you play a certain amount and get get experience on the court, you start, I've found that you start to feel things more than necessarily see them, even though I am still taking my eyes off the ball and I still do use that tactic to see if, you know, look for very specific things. But the more volleyball you play, you, you just kind of fill your, you know, mental textbook of experience and, and start to feel certain situations as they come to you. And, and I guess one thing now is I've, I've started to become more aware of when the middle blocker on the other side is, is going to commit or, or not, or he's not going to commit, and then just react, and just setting um, based on that. And that's not an all-the-time thing for sure, but that's uh, more of a feel thing, I would say, than anything very concrete. But I would say that the international game that I've learned is that there aren't – the game is so fast and, and it's so calculated – and every team has such in-depth statistics on each, on you and, and on everybody that uh, that is a part of the game that changes a little bit once you get to national team and professional level is that your game becomes 
a little bit more like a chess match, I would say, in terms of that you're doing things in a, in a very tactical way for a specific reason, and therefore there's no need to look at the other side because you're, you are doing what you want to do rather than reacting to, to what they're doing. So there's a place for both, but um, it definitely involves uh, over time and, and the level that, that you're playing at. Yeah, we've been lucky to have a lot of talented people like you on the show. And one thing that blew my mind about TJ was he mentioned he doesn't really like he pays attention to his own tendencies. But similar to what you're kind of saying is for the other team to know what he wants to do, you kind of have to know your blockers well and his hitters where he doesn't feel like he really has a tendency. If he's taking two steps back, he's going to set this ball. It's going to be like, what was the situation? What rotation are you in? What rotation are you in? So is that something you pride yourself on as well Is just knowing that when you're doing your prep work is not only who's hot on your team and what situations can you maybe isolate them, but also looking at the blockers and defenders on the other side of the net. Something I try to do for sure. I'm in no, by no means a, a TJ on that level. I think TJ is pretty <laughs> exceptional in his ability to think the game and his ability to, you know, stay kind of malleable in his, in his game plan. And then, like you say, not have too many tendencies. I mean, we all have tendencies to a certain extent, but I, I do think that TJ is pretty exceptional at being aware of, of his own, you know, distributions and, and tendencies, I guess you could call them, and then being able to counter those um, going forward. And I think that's what makes part of what makes TJ such a good setter. For me, I, I, I like to have a certain amount of information on the other side, um, no question, and, and specific blockers' tendencies. But I don't like to go too crazy with it because I find that it kind of, kind of overloads me a little bit. Um, mentally, and I, I like to give myself a little bit, a little bit of wiggle room and freedom to to kind of play on the fly a little bit. Sometimes when I'm when I'm playing, when I when I'm playing my best, I find that's more or less what I'm doing. And so um, that's something I'd really like to develop more of, and something I've learned a lot from from TJ. Um, getting to play with him for the past couple of years, and something I want to continue to pick his brain about on, on other guys, but. That is definitely something that becomes, like I said, more important in the international and pro game, knowing distributions and percentages and your your own tendencies. Being able to, you know, make some decisions based on those is uh, is a pretty valuable part of, of setting for sure, and something I'm I'm continuing to work on. So for our coaches and again younger listeners, if they wanted to, you know kind of mimic or, or look up to you and see what you're doing with your skill set. Would you recommend that they kind of have a script that says, okay, I'm in this rotation. If we get a good pass, like these are the types of things I want to do. Or are you more in a situation where you're reading it out every single time based on the pass quality? What rotation are we in? What rotation are they in? Like you mentioned, you're making all these quick decisions that you might not even be realizing just because you're so used to like the feel of the game. But for somebody who's developing these skills, like should setters be, you know, I don't want to say put in a box, but they should, should they follow a script to a certain standpoint or is it always just feeling out what the receivers give you and what you can do in that situation? Well, in, in my opinion, I think that having a, a game plan an idea of what you want to accomplish based on the team you're playing is a really important thing, crucial thing to be going in. I don't think you want to be going into a game just, without any thought of who's on the other side and what your purpose and intent is in that particular game. And it'll change from game to game depending on your opponent and depending on your own team. But I do like to have a little bit of, give myself a little bit of freedom. Um, but there are a lot of, a lot of, most of the time I have an idea in mind before the, before the, before the play. And, and it might not be one particular set, but it might be two or three options. And then I'm going to make a decision based on that. 
of what I feel or what I see or what, you know, who if a passer's on the ground or something like that um, and is out. And, and so I think giving that little bit of freedom and flexibility to yourself and, and to your setter if you're a coach um, on any given play is, is pretty important because each play is totally unique and there are going to be different variables and circumstances that might render your choice that you had pre-made in your mind, if that's what you did, un- unsettable. Um, and then what do you do? And you just kind of have to react. But if you have that little bit of flexibility and, and if things totally line up how perfectly how you want them to, then you can execute what, what you wanted to execute. But I, I do think there's a, a balance point there of allowing yourself the freedom to um, feel something and, and play and, and react a little bit to the situation while also having a real purpose and intent. This is awesome, man. Thanks for sharing all the details you have. I'm definitely learning a lot. I bet our listeners are too. So we, we, we've picked your brain, some technical, tactical. I'm sure we'll get back to that. I did want to talk a little bit about goal setting and how you go into a season where expectations are high. So obviously you're on a very competitive team in Belgium. You guys won the cup with a friend of the show, Daniel Dance Van Dorn. You're at U of A. You win two national championships. Like, are you a guy who wants to put it on the wall and say, we're here to win a national championship. When I go to lift weights, I'm going to lift weights to win a national championship. Or are you more like the, the trendy Philadelphia 76ers where we have a process in place. If you follow that, like it's going to take care of itself like where do you kind of fall on that spectrum of we're about excellence here and you know we have high expectations for ourselves even if maybe you talk about them a lot or you don't talk about them at all it's a really good question i I, i'd say i'm somewhere in between i wouldn't say i'm the extreme of you know putting the like a picture of the national trophy or something on the wall and having every guy touch it before they leave the locker room or something like that and i'm certainly not just the you know, just follow the, the process guy. Well, I do believe in that, but it's not really my approach. I think that for me, the best way that I can convey to my teammates or whoever what what is important to me is just having a consistently strong work ethic and, and a positive attitude every day. And uh, that's what I that's all I strive to do is to no matter what happens if season goes awry and things don't go well or, or whatever, I can live with that as long as I know that I've, you know, put my best foot forward and worked as hard as possible. And I know that my teammates would say that about me. That's the most important value to me is that if, if my team, independent of, of success, would say that I'm, I'm a guy that worked extremely hard and, and laid it all out for the team and, and showed up, you know, ready to work every day then I can feel really good about that. And that's just the only real way that I measure it for myself. And then, or I try to, I'm not perfect at that. And of course I have, you know, um, thoughts of success or, or wins and losses always creep in, you know, like, like for anybody, but that's, that's how I try to approach it. And that's what I want, would want my teammates to say about me at the end of the day. Um, and anything else is, is a bonus really. Nice. So when you were winning player of the year and you're setting these ridiculous like assist records, was that something on your mind or is that just something pretty cool to look back and say, you know, this, this confirms that I worked my tail off and I I got some accomplishments. Like was the assist thing ever really talked about even between you and Brock or any of the other setters on the team? No, no, it wasn't. Uh, You know, it's something I'm I'm proud of and and I'm happy that uh, my name is on that list with so many other amazing setters that have gone through the Canadian university programs and stuff like that and it's a real honor for me but it was never really talked about never something that was forefront of my mind 
I always just try to not worry about stuff like that or not really think about it. I, I like to think I did a good job of that. And uh, my my sole focus, for sure, when I was at UA was, like I said, just working as hard as I could and, and trying to be a good teammate and a good leader. Now, of course, I wanted to win national championships. And I wanted to win as many games as possible like everybody else did. But in terms of the individual successes and stuff, I wouldn't say that that was ever forefront in my mind or anyone's mind. Uh, and that was just a testament to the culture of the team. It was never about one person. Nice. And in the spirit of hopefully not getting you in trouble, I was hoping you could share just a couple more secrets where Terry's pretty famous about like a holistic approach where you're just not there to get better at, at volleyball at UVA, that he's going to actually, you know, help you achieve things as a person, as, as an adult. So did anything stand out in some of your meetings, whether it be like at the leadership group or anything else you were a part of that Terry really helped you, you know, on and off the court outside of, you know, just winning national championships and winning games that you felt like, wow, he really cares about me as a person. Yeah, I mean, there's probably too many examples to even talk about, but that, that leadership group is a good example um, that Terry created that I know a few other guys in the show had talked about. And that was pretty cool to meet weekly with the, you know, the elected leadership group by the team, and then Terry would take us through some literature that was on leadership and share his experiences, and we would just have kind of fireside chats about it all. And it was really cool to to get to listen to my teammates' perspectives on, on things like leadership that often you wouldn't necessarily have those in-depth types of guided conversations like we did. So that was a really cool experience, was, which was something above and beyond that Terry didn't have to do, but he, but he did and, and was a really great thing for us. But um, I, I'd say for Terry, the biggest thing was that he just had this ability to, to make you feel, I guess, cared about and, and important. And he was always uh, a school-first guy. That was always the priority, and that was made very clear to us, which was a really great thing, too. And I think when you're a student-athlete that's just totally absorbed with your sport, it can be kind of easy to forget that you're you're a student-athlete, not just an athlete, and uh, let things slide. And, and it's easy to forget that there's life after sport. You need to prepare yourself for that. And I think Terry did a pretty amazing job of always keeping us in check that way um, and making sure we were, without you know holding our hand, making sure we were on top of stuff and, and, uh, and making sure that that was known to be of value on our team and starting things like study hall and where guys could come in and, and work together on stuff and study and uh, making sure that whenever we were on the road, we were given half the time to study and all those things that, that are a little bit above and beyond. So, And uh, beyond that, I think just his, his daily presence and, and attitude. It was demanding, but it was fun. And, and he did a pretty amazing job, especially after such a long career of just having an incredible amount of energy for what he was doing for us and made us feel like we were the most important thing uh, going on. So that was pretty cool. And what did you prefer to be your leadership style? So, again, an Ontario guy, Reed May, was on the squad. Just great competitor, super elite in everything he did. And just, again, watching U of A from a distance, like John Gorenson, tough competitor. Riley Barnes, like, as good as a university player as I think there's ever been. So it's easy maybe when you're winning national championships. But in those later years for you, when, when things got a little bit tougher and maybe Trinity gets that upset win, like, are, are you the leader taking control? Does it come down to Terry and Brock? Like, what's going on in those situations where you have such these these high-performance and things aren't going the way in terms of national championships, who's the one in the room really speaking up and making sure that we're still, you know, following our process or we still have, you know, the idea that we can get better even though maybe we dropped a Canadian West championship or something like that? Well, 
those names that you just said, I just loved and to play with those guys and to, the opportunity to play with guys like Rito and, and John and, and Riley and Taylor and Ed. Nick Four and Proudfoot and all the older guys that, that came through, Jaron, Eric, Mitch, Tristan, uh, Matt McCreary, all those guys that were just amazing competitors and, and great leaders. Um, I would say that, you know, I was, I think I was certainly a leader on that team. Uh, or those those teams in the later years, and oh, I always just tried mostly to lead by example, and uh, you know work hard in training, and and then you know we 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 were mature enough to be able to call each other out when we were dogging it or or we weren't happy with what another guy was doing, and uh, and, and then take that in a positive way, even though it kind of sucks in the moment. But but the cool thing about our group, I think, in those years was that there were a lot of different voices. Um, in the locker room. It certainly wasn't just me. I, you know, I would share my thoughts with the team um, as much as I felt I needed to or, or whatever else. And, and Terry and Brock were, and, and Doc, our other assistant coach, um, were, you know, great at, at sharing their wisdom. But I think they did leave it a lot to us. And we were an older group by that point and had some experiences under our belts. And, and guys like John, you know, he's a big, strong personality and he was able to, uh, share some pretty cool things with the group too and, and Reed and Riley were a little bit more soft spoken I would say than the other guys but when they would say something it would carry a lot of weight if that makes sense they wouldn't necessarily contribute as much in the locker room in like a post game meeting or something but you know when Riley or Reed got emotional about something and, and had something to say that that there was a lot of weight behind it. So that was cool when, when guys would kind of pick and choose their times of when to demand of the team and demand of themselves and demand of others. And, but I think just our, our training uh, culture in having a really competitive training environment did a lot of that work for us. Awesome. This is good stuff, man. So when you're, you're going through U of A and you're just acquiring all these skills both on and off the court, do you remember what your first time back in Gatineau was that you had a chance to kind of show the coaches that you had not only taken their feedback but worked your tail off that you could now apply it and really earn a, a spot on the squad? Uh, yeah, so I think after my third year, I went to the B-team tryout in Gatineau at the end of that year and had a good, I had a good trial camp as far as I can remember and ended up being picked for the team. And, and that was a really, really great moment for me after having been cut from the junior team the two years before and then, you know, working really hard and having a few good good experiences uh, with other teams, provincial team in U of A, and then uh, learning lots and developing physically and, and uh, in, my, in my setting as well and in my, you know, uh, leadership capabilities, whatever, whatever it was, it was, it was growth over the, those two years, and then to to have gotten checked for that that B team was just uh, that was a pretty amazing feeling, and that that summer was was awesome. And do you still remember the first time you got to represent Canada internationally? Yes, it was. Uh, well, actually, technically, it was when I was sixteen. We went our club team at, from Canuck got to. Uh, represent Canada at a Norseca tournament in Mexico, which I got to be a part of and go down to. That was, you know, exactly representative of a U-17 national team, but we got to wear the Canadian flag and represent Canada in the tournament. So that was an amazing experience. But my, my first time on a, on a national team, for sure, was that, that summer, and we had a, a Pan-American Cup tournament in Reno, Nevada at the end of the summer that we had worked for, and, and that, was, uh, that was pretty surreal. 
And how have you found your experience with the team where we, we've had a lot of great guys on the show, like I said, and they, they kind of mentioned there's this this unwritten rule that once you're a part of the squad, you're a part of the squad. And there doesn't seem to be a ton of hierarchy between like the A guys and even guys just coming in for like FISU or something like that, right? So was there any vets who kind of pulled you aside and kind of showed you the way? Or is the culture just so strong there that once you're, like I said, once you're in the family that it just kind of takes care of itself and everybody knows to buy into like the bigger goals that the program has? The guys that have been in the program for you know, well, everybody that's played for the national team has left their mark. Um, but the guys in my era that I've gotten to know a little bit have done a pretty amazing job of creating a really inclusive culture. And from the A team down to the down to the youth team, anybody that's training at the center in Gatineau is it's all just kind of one big uh, one big group, which was really cool. And so that's that's totally true. And then there's a whole alumni you know chain of, of people that are still involved and in touch with the program and and for sure like you say it's once you're part of the program you're forever part of it so it's it's pretty cool that way for me i would say yeah everybody was was very uh inclusive i got to play with blair not that first uh my first summer there with the, with the b team he was our libero in in reno and and he had so much experience at that point already playing up with the AT and had such a great university career and was playing overseas. That he was one of the older guys on that team. And uh, he did a pretty cool job of kind of bridging that gap a little bit and showing what the expectation was at the next level, which was the A team, and, and brought that into training every day and, and brought that kind of energy that, that was cool to see. So Blair was a, was a big one. And then once I started getting a little more time with the A team, TJ for sure took me under his wing a little bit. We got the chance to, to talk to each other a lot. He shared a bunch of his experiences with me and made me feel really welcome. But tons of guys like Rudy Verhoof, who was around at that time, was is just one of the greatest guys to go on. And, and he was may always made sure to make sure guys felt comfortable and included. And you know, I could go down the list. Uh, Graham Graham Bygrass, in his way, has an amazing way of, of uh, making you feel welcome but also demanding a lot of you and that was that's something I've learned a lot from Graham so there's you know every guy has their unique way of bringing out good things in other guys so it's a pretty cool thing to be a part of now obviously somebody with your resume you, you definitely have the ability to kind of dial it in when you need to and really you know get after it and improve but one thing that still stands in my mind when we had TJ on the show is he talked about like attitude and effort isn't really talked about he said with the senior guys at practice like that's that's just an expectation like that's a bare minimum where he talked about like little things like if you said you're blocking line and somebody beat you down the line like that's a problem that's a situational error that you weren't dialed in enough to like execute your role so for somebody like you who's played at like the highest level when you entered the national team did you get that mood in practice that you have to be showed up you got to be dialed in and ready to go like every single rep oh yeah absolutely and that was another you know like wake up call for sure no TJ spot on like once you get to that level it's it's, you know, everyone is there to improve as much as possible on that day. And that requires full focus and intent and energy and, and, a, and a strong work ethic. And so for sure, it was, it was a different type of experience than I had been used to. A lot of it was in how demanding guys were of each other and, uh, and the expectations that were a part of that. And if you weren't going absolutely all out for a ball that you could have, or if you um, didn't execute your your tactical plan, like that that blocking example is a perfect one. Um, then that's a problem, and and you will hear about it, and and you don't have too many of those mistakes to be made before you're before you're out of there. So it's it's a it's a 
it's an awesome environment, but it is intense. And uh, that was uh, certainly took some time to adjust to. Now, does anything stand out in your mind about something that improved your game? Because I'm thinking, like, looking up and down what you accomplished at the university level is amazing, but what's a setters meeting like with TJ and Jay and some other guys and the coaches? Like, are they really nitpicking where you're improving, like, little things, or is a lot of it just decision-making? Like, how much how much are they going on individual sessions, or is it a lot of team squad? Like, just give us a maybe a typical summer for you and Gatineau. Like, how much are you improving versus just kind of learning the system? Uh, yeah, you know, it's a bit of both. Um, we're always working on technical stuff. There's always room to improve. Trying to touch as many balls as possible and get to as many proper repetitions as possible of good technique. And but I, I would say that a lot of our conversations now between, let's just say, JTJ and I are are a lot of we're asking each other questions about why we do certain things or how we do certain things or, or we're trying to innovate a little bit and think of ways to um, be creative and, and learning from each other that way and, and, and expanding our own kind of understanding of setting. So it's a lot of tactical stuff about how to run a game plan or, or what you look for. A lot of the things that we've been talking about today, what you look for on the other side, how you approach a game. And then probably as we've gotten older, I think the, one of the biggest things that we end up talking about is just like managing uh, emotions on the court and that's a huge part of what it comes down to especially as the stakes continue to get higher as, as you play volleyball uh, internationally and professionally I think as a setter that's such an important thing and, and just learning from each other about how how to emotionally manage specific situations is such a it's a, it's a valuable resource for us to have in each other so with vision being so important as a setter and, and obviously high-level volleyball players being aware of this, have you ever run into some middles trying to mess with you and throw false information, whether it be an opponent or is, is Graham across then at a practice trying to mess with you and throw false steps? Like, do, do the middles know what's happening and they therefore they try to, like, trick you? Or is their job so challenging that they just have to stay neutral and kind of take care of their footwork and their responsibilities? Well, it's, well yeah, it's for sure a really challenging job and they've got it incredible amount of information that they have to process in a very short amount of time and make decisions based on but for sure they like to play games and, and I mean at the end of the day a lot of the time in like good pass situation it's basically setter versus middle in terms of like the, the setting choice that's kind of who you're trying to beat 95% of the time and so there's always little games and, and the more experienced middles get the, the more they're I'd say start to be aware of those things and Graham's for sure one of the most experienced bills in the world, and, and he likes to mess around with us for sure. And, and <laughs> he's a very cerebral player, and so I think he's able to kind of understand what we're looking for based on what has happened and then what set we make. He pays attention to those things. And so I, for sure, Graham's one that likes to mess around. Dan JVD um, is another one of those guys who really likes to try and play with the setter. And, and uh so for sure, that, that's a whole other thing is now as a setter, you're trying to figure out if a middle is actually doing something or if he's doing something to play with you, and you're always trying to stay a step ahead of that. So that's a, kind of another level of a really fun back-and-forth game between middle and setter. So looking at your generation and guys you competed with and against, like the, the Steve Marr and Riley Barnes are pretty famous where they, they got some pretty top-level contracts coming out of U-Sports, and obviously you not having to be an FTC guy, which may be like, 
I don't know, 10 years ago was probably the common thing to do, right? Or even less than that, maybe. I think Jaren was maybe the last generation that felt like they had to go to FTC before they could go pro. But anyways, with your experience of, of getting that first pro deal and then actually signing a two-year deal, what kind of goes into that decision? Because it sounds like every volleyball player's experience when turning pro is kind of unique where some people like the idea of betting on themselves and doing one-year deals and maybe picking a different country or a different league the following year where you kind of got to lock in with a club for two years. Is that something that's more comforting to you? Or, or how do you like to approach this process of playing pro volleyball? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it changes over time, I think, for sure. I, I, uh, I made the decision. Well, so my first year overseas was in Ponta in Italy. And uh, I did sign a, a two-year contract. But it was, a, it was a two-year contract where the club had the option on the second year, meaning that by a certain date, they could decide whether or not they wanted to like uh, complete that second-year contract with me. And so essentially it was a one-year contract because they could just kind of cut the cord on the second year at any time, um, which was an interesting situation. And I, but it was fine. It motivated me. And so I went there and, and I knew that the coach there in Monta was Miguel Falasca, who was one of the best setters of all time, Spanish setter. Um, unfortunately, he passed away this past year. So rest in peace, Miguel Falasca, an amazing guy, an amazing coach. Um, but I knew that I would go there and learn a ton from him. And I went there as, as the second guy and, and uh, knew that I would, you know, hopefully play a little bit, but um, was was definitely in more of a learning um, capacity there that year. And then, um, unfortunately, the club decided not to keep me for the next year, which which is also kind of a challenging thing. It, it, was, it, was, it was, you know, felt, felt like I had not... Uh, accomplished what I what I could have accomplished there was to stay for another year and be the starting guy which was kind of their their plan and that didn't work out and, and I'm really thankful that I then went to to Rosalaire um, in Belgium and had two amazing years there but yeah so it, it was interesting that way that it, in a lot of ways it, it was kind of on paper a failure um, for me to not have stayed for the second year and there was a ton of uncertainty around that and it was a stressful strange time but uh, a lot of again a lot of great things came out of it for me now with your ability to find an agent did you know other players that they had represented were you just kind of asking around the community or did you take a chance on a guy because it feels like even hiring an agent can be a unique challenge for a lot of volleyball players yeah it's a really unique challenge um and it's different for everybody. I was I was really fortunate that uh, this uh, an agency that had signed both Riley Barnes and, and Steve Barr the previous like in their Riley's fifth year of university they had come to nationals I think for the first time that they'd ever come to the Canadian nationals they they'd often gone down to the NCAA but um, they had never come to the Canadian national championship before and that was the first year they did and I think. Riley and Mar were some of their first like CIS or U Sports now, I guess, uh, athletes. Um, so the timing of that was just extremely fortuitous. And then the next year, my fifth year, they came to nationals again, and I they offered to work with me, and I was I said sure, um, that would be awesome. And so that being a part of, of their agency has been a, a real blessing for sure. Um, and just like I said, extremely fortuitous timing of them finally kind of deciding to expand into the Canadian market. Um, but it's a, it's a, for sure a challenging process and it's difficult to know who you should go with. And I think the best thing you can do is just reach out to players that are represented by them and then have a conversation with them, whether or not they're someone you know or not. Uh, I think all, you know, all athletes are in the same boat and are more than happy to share their experiences. I think that's the best way to, 
to know whether or not it would be a good fit for you and, and ask questions about how they deal and how they communicate and, and the places that they have good connections with and stuff like that. Now, I think a lot of people deserve credit for this big turnaround with Canada. Obviously, it starts with Glenn Hogue, but as somebody who's, who's contributed but also kind of benefited from this this spark in Canadian volleyball, how does it feel being on the inside? Like, what is the vibe when you go overseas? Do Canadians just have a, a really good reputation of being, you know, not only good on the world scale, but are we hardworking? Like, what are some little things that other countries are starting to notice from Canadians? Because like I said, guys are leaving youth sports and getting contracts that maybe like the Paul Durden generation weren't going to get coming out of school. And obviously Paul's not the best example as a guy who skipped university to go to the national team, but that era of player, they weren't getting the Italian look their first year. Right. So how does it feel as a Canadian to kind of be, again, like I said, contributing, but benefiting from this trend happening? Yeah. It's, it's um, like I said, it's feel like I'm a beneficiary of good timing in, in so many ways, but, the, uh, yeah, the, the Canadian volleyball landscape has just come so far in this past, let's say, 10 to 15 years, and um, that's full credit to, to Glenn and, uh, and everybody that's been involved in the program, and it's extremely hard to, to improve our, our, our team, and uh, that's created lots of good opportunities, and then it's, it's you know, it's a domino effect. The guys start getting contracts in better leagues and come back better players, and that, and that helps the national team continue to grow, and, and uh, that's really exciting. For sure, I, I would say definitely that Canadians have uh, are starting to be more recognized as, as legitimate, you know, uh, guys overseas in the European and Asian leagues, and, and that's pretty cool. And I, and I would agree with that. That I'd say our general reputation is that we're we're grinders and hardworking guys, and that's something we're really proud of. And uh, is just kind of intrinsic in our national team, and so you know that that's what guys are going to be doing overseas, and that that does a pretty great job of of uh, creating a, a good reputation for Canadian volleyball in Europe and elsewhere. So by now, I'm sure the listeners have noticed, like not only your resume, but but your passion for the sport is definitely coming through. So it, it seems like we're we're lucky that you've started this organization, your Precision Volleyball Academy. Where did this idea spark from that you wanted to, to give back so early in your career that you wanted to help give feedback and really push the next generation of Canadian setters to be like on your level and hopefully someday better, right? Oh yeah, for sure better. Well, yeah, I get excited about young setters. You know, well, what they're going to be like down down the road. I'm so excited to watch it because it's just going to be above and beyond anything that I can do for sure. But Precision Volleyball Academy is was actually something that my dad had started, let's say, 10 to 15 years ago in, in Calgary, and it was called Precision Volleyball Academy, and it was basically small group training um, specific to setting. And athletes would come in and in groups of anywhere from four to eight people uh, for an hour, and, and you'd just run, run them through setting drills and give you know really specific uh, feedback technical feedback individually each athlete it was very personal and that was just a really successful model that all the athletes um, that came through seemed to really get a lot out of it and so that was pretty cool and, and I started first in the academy myself as a, as a young young athlete and learned a ton and got a ton of really valuable reps and really great coaching from my dad and uh, learned a lot about setting and technique. And then, and then as I started to get into university and, and, and on, whenever I was home, I would be involved in, in the coaching of it and eventually ended up mostly taking over the coaching from him and, and the organization and everything. And, and so I got a lot of experience that way, analyzing the technique of setting and, and then articulating it and, and coaching it to, to young athletes. And I really, really enjoyed doing it. And I'm not 
really in Calgary or anywhere in Canada for for long enough to do something like that on a regular basis in person right now, though I'd very much like to. And so the next thought, uh, my girlfriend and I, Tessa, um, thought about how well, how can we, how can we do this? If we can do it now, how, how can we do it? And then the next um, thought was to, to think of a way to do it online. And, and we thought, so Tessa built out the website, and it's, uh, I think she did an amazing job. Looks really good, and it's pretty functional. And, and uh, so she did all that work, and she's really talented there. And then our model was, uh, how can we kind of continue to offer the precision model, but online? And uh, we came up with our two programs, our, our one-time you know, setting technique assessment, where an athlete will send me a video of them playing a practice or a game, and then I'll analyze video, give them a few key things to work on, a few drills to work on, and then I'll film a video of myself talking and explaining the concepts behind the things that I'm giving them to work on. Um, and that's, I think, the value of the kind of individualized approach to it and uh, the best way we thought to deliver that to the athletes via, via the internet. And then the other program, which we don't have on right now, is the four-week program, which is more of a, a progression-based progression program where the athletes film themselves um, following kind of a setting sequence and that I give them. And, and each week, I, you know, I'll analyze where they're at and, and continue to build on the things I've given them before. Um, and I, I like that because it allows me to work with an athlete for a longer period of time and then kind of monitor uh, their progression through it and, and help them and give them some stuff to work on. So that's pretty cool. We're, that's just, you know, the, the situation we're in right now with gyms not being open has kind of put a wrench in that for the moment, but I'm excited about that for the future. Amazing, amazing. So, so give us a little sneak peek here, because I think volleyball fans will know that like Mika Christensen has some unique footwork. TJ's got a style. You've got a style. But it, it's fair to say that there's some technical things that every setter needs to be able to do, and, and obviously like their physical abilities and their own style can be taken into control, right? But there's some pretty technical stuff that you you would really instill in young athletes, right? For sure, for sure. And like you say, everyone's got their own. Um, technique and, and, and everyone will be slightly different but there are for sure overarching concepts that I think are very important and if you ask any setter they would have probably their own take on it but I think the, the general concept is going to be pretty similar so footwork is, is super important and, and working on just getting to the ball as, as quickly as possible seems obvious in itself but isn't always thought about I think by, by setters but it's the quicker you can get onto the ball you know, the more time you're going to have to to make the set and, and do it technically properly, and also um, that will set you up for more creativity in the future in terms of playing with your body position a little bit. So having quick feet to get on the ball is super important. Everyone's footwork is going to be slightly different. Brock and I always um, work on a right-left close on our on our finish. So if we're coming off the net and are going to be jump setting or, or standing setting, trying to trying to close our last two steps with uh, with a right-left was was something we worked on and that worked for me another big big thing that my dad always instilled in me was uh as far as footwork goes is whenever you have to chase down a ball you should be taking long steps to begin with like a sprinter just getting there as fast as possible and then as you um, start to approximate where the ball is your, your steps should start to get really quick and that is to kind of decelerate yourself and and, and get your body under control so it should be really long um sprinter steps and then as you get to the ball they need to become really quick and that's where you want to hear kind of the squeak of the gym floor and then it's, and it's, so that's that's footwork I, I really like one foot takeoffs i think it's a great way to to be athletic as a setter and then speed up the game just a, a fraction of a second rather than waiting for the ball to come 
to come to you. I like to go cut it off with one foot, and I think that's um, a good thing for setters to develop. And then that's that's kind of the footwork stuff. And then in terms of handwork, everyone's hand position is going to be a little bit different. I think the most important things are, are trying to maintain as neutral of a contact point as possible so that you're not giving information uh, to the other side about where you're going to set the ball or as little as possible and then making it more consistent for you. And then uh, bringing your hands up early. I think that's something that a lot of setters don't uh, do not do as well as they should is bringing their hands up early to the ball and, and just being very still before you set the ball. You want to kind of try and avoid as much extra movement as possible when you're setting because it's such a technical and precise skill um, that small movements can make big uh, differences in the outcome of a set. So I think if setters get quickly under the ball, bring their hands up early and then feel, try and feel as still as possible before they set the ball, that's going to accomplish a lot for them. Awesome, man. You definitely sparked my interest and hopefully some listeners as well. So what's the uh, website and social so we can get a hold of you and Tessa and get started on this program? Awesome. Yeah, so the website is just www.precisionvolleyballacademy.com. We're Precision Volleyball Academy on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, our email is precisionvolleyacademy at gmail.com. No ball after volley. Uh, otherwise, that's that's pretty much where we are. So, yeah, if anybody wants to go take a look and, and wants to work with me, I would absolutely love to, uh, to work with you. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a pretty complex position to coach, and I, I think as a – as a guy who coaches club, you don't always get the time to work with setters. So I think a service like this is definitely going to benefit everybody. And just listening to you talk, man, you're, you're more than qualified to just, I, I wish I could take it if I was still playing, but maybe I should anyways. <laughs> but uh, this is great stuff. <laughs> Give me the passing dimes discount. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate bro. that, Josh. I, I hope I can uh, help some, some young athletes. Yeah, man. Well, thanks. We're, we're trying to make it a little bit of a tradition that, you know, people have heard about how awesome you are and all the amazing things you got going on. But, you know, you can't escape how funny the volleyball community is sometimes. So I was hoping you could share a, a funny story before we let you go. Yeah, for sure. So the one that, that comes to my mind is uh, when I got over to Italy for my first pro season, uh, we had a national team tournament that had run until like almost October. Uh, very end of September, which is really late because often the teams will start training like middle of August overseas. And so I was already kind of like a month and a half late for my pro season and got to Italy and we had our first game, which was like an Italian Cup pre-quarter final, I guess you could call it, the game before the quarterfinal, within like two days of me arriving there. And uh, didn't know anybody on the team, like was just kind of getting out of race. And it was already a pretty you know intense moment of the season. It was, it was a do or die match right away. And uh, so I'm in the locker room warming up, with the, get, you know, getting ready for the guys getting dressed. We're getting ready to head out, and uh, I'm really nervous. Like I'm just so nervous. My first pro game. It's an important game. I'm just like, and I just like realize I have to go to the bathroom because I'm so nervous. <laughs> so I go, so I go back into the locker room as everybody's kind of getting ready to go out, and I go in the stall and start, you know, doing what I had to do. And then by the time I finished up. I, you know, wash my hands, <laughs> and then I go out to the court, and it's locked from the door is locked from the outside, <laughs> and I had no, there was like I could not lock it, not, or sorry, could not unlock it from the inside. So I'm trapped now in the locker room as the guys have taken the court at home, as the team and we every game we run out to our kind of through our tunnel of super fans and and you know clap to the crowd and we get announced and everything I just wasn't with them and I'm locked in the locker room and obviously no one has their phone because they're all in the locker room the 
phones are on water. And so I'm stuck in there, I'm banging on the door, and it's really kind of in a back hallway, away from anything. And the gym's loud, so no, no one can. And so it took almost 20 to 25 minutes before anybody noticed that I wasn't even there. <laughs> <laughs> They're halfway through the dynamic warm-up, and I'm just in the locker room, still like pounding on the door, not really sure what to do. This is my first game overseas. I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. Like, so embarrassed. I get super red when I'm embarrassed. So when finally somebody realized and came and, and unlocked the door, my face was just beat red, and I went out to the court. And everybody at this point had kind of figured what was going on, and they all just kind of looked at me and laughed and clapped for me as I came on the court. My first first game as a professional volleyball player, that's what happened to me. So that was that was pretty hilarious <laughs> that's amazing you're in a volleyball crazy country like italy and i'm sure your teammates and some of the super fans are like who's the new guy like what's his deal right now <laughs> exactly oh man it was pretty funny but everybody laughed about it and thankfully we, we won the game so <laughs> oh that's another good one to add to the list thank you for that so um, i can't thank you enough man for coming on the show sharing your career and a lot of secrets that hopefully you know if, if terry ever listens to the show i hope we don't get in trouble for all the great u of a secrets we're getting but <laughs> Great to great to pick your brain and hear about all the things you're doing, and it it's too bad about I mean the break we're in I'm I'm not qualified to talk about it for sure I'm just a volleyball podcast but it, it's great to hear that you're still staying involved with Precision right now while you know the national team's on break and and I'm sure if and when we get back you'll be raring to go and ready to contribute and kind of keep building on this awesome career you got going. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot for for having me on the show it's a, it's a real pleasure to, to get to chat with you about volleyball so um, and I just want to commend you guys for, for doing what you're doing and I think it's it's cool to have all these conversations uh, about the game and about guys lives and, and what it's like so uh, kudos to you guys well yeah thanks again Brett and uh, next time we have you on I'll promise we'll, we'll stick to the time budget a little bit better than we did today but I didn't want to cut you off in those stories so thanks for going into overtime for us today oh my pleasure I, I could talk about this stuff all day so no, no worries <laughs>